The Audio B.A. is brought to you by the Bible Advocate Press. Salvation and Service. September, October, 2023. Read to you by Tabitha Overman. 1 Word. Saved to Serve. Have you ever wondered what we are saved for? Usually we focus on what we are saved from. Sin, Matthew 1.21, Wrath, Romans 5.9, and Death, James 5.20. Jesus gave his life to deliver us from this present evil age and from the power of darkness, Galatians 1.4, Colossians 1.13. Praise the Lord. So what are we saved for? Israel's Exodus story gives a clue. At the Red Sea, the language of salvation bursts on the Bible scene. As Pharaoh's chariots chase Israel, Moses tells the people, Do not be afraid, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus 14:13 Later, when Pharaoh's chariots sink into the sea, Moses sings, "The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation." 15:2 Exodus establishes the pattern of salvation. God saves Israel from bondage. But the story shows what God's people are saved for as well. Seven times Moses tells Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may serve me. 423, 8-1, 20-7-16, 9-1, 13-10-3. Salvation means that Israel is freed from slavery to serve the Lord. So it is in Christ. As Paul wrote to the Romans, But God be thanked, that ye were the servants of sin, but now being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. 6, 17, 22 KJV. That's what we are safe for, and Jesus is our model of service. Mark 10:45. If the Savior served, the saved serve as well. Luke 22:27. We are saved for many things, but chief among these is God, and serving Him means serving all. As each one has received a gift, Minister it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 1 Peter 4, 10 I saw this in action at the GC convention in July. God be praised. What a joy to see the saved serving together. See convention pictures on pages 27 to 30. Jason Overman Salvation and Service Come and See Your New Life in Christ by Jody McCoy 
The wisdom of this world values utility. We acquire resources that benefit us, while ridding ourselves of those we no longer find useful. This wisdom drives the business world to the extent of seeing employees as human resources. Businesses retain staff members they find profitable and purge themselves of those they consider liabilities. They can't afford not to if they want to survive. Like businesses, the sports world judges an individual's worth to the team based on performance. In this highly competitive environment, players who fall behind are progressively eliminated at each level. For example, most high school athletes aren't invited to play at the university level, and the vast majority of those who make it that far won't be selected by a professional team. It's survival of the fittest in this relentless pursuit of only the best. Given the realities of our performance-driven world, it's not surprising to find this way of thinking extended to religious beliefs. After all, didn't Jesus say, Many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew 22:14. And straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it, 7, 14, KJV. Wasn't Jesus saying that God evaluates our performance to select the best and discard the rest? No, he wasn't. Other than Christianity, the world's religions believe, in essence, that God sifts through the mass of humanity to select the elite few who prove themselves useful for his coming kingdom. Those who perform well enough to make the cut are justified before God, as in the business and sports worlds. But this way overlooks a critical point. Businesses and sports value an individual's ability to fulfill their unique needs. They don't assess the individual's entire worth as a person. But that's what religions do when they speak of a person justifying their continued existence. When a religion places greater worth on a person's performance than on the person, it sends a clear message. People are nothing more than disposable tools to God. And he only keeps those who prove themselves useful to him but that's a gross misrepresentation of God. One and only way. Christianity alone teaches that God's standard of performance is perfection. Genesis 17.1 God doesn't sort through imperfect humans to find the ones with the fewest flaws. Under God's standard, you're either perfect or you're out. Therefore, based on our performance, all of sinful humanity is condemned, falling short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 There is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 10 On our own merit, none of us can enter God's eternal kingdom. Our mere presence would contaminate its glorious perfection. Jesus' disciples were so astonished at his teaching about this that they asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Mark 10, 26, 
27. Jesus told Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees, that no one can enter God's kingdom unless they are born again. John 3.3 Meaning only those born with the perfect nature of Christ. Like Jesus' disciples, Nicodemus was amazed. No one can do this. It's impossible. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand. That only God can make people perfect. Our self-sufficiency and self-righteousness can never measure up to God's standard of perfection. Once we sin, miss the mark, all hope is lost. Even if we never sin again, we still must pay for what we've done, and the penalty for sin is death. God's law is righteous and good, but its power is the power to condemn, not save. Thus, we can never sanctify ourselves through our own performance to be justified before God. This would be the end of the story if our Creator valued performance above people. But God is as good as He is holy. In His great love for us, God values us as individuals despite our repeated failures to perform. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our utter inability to live up to God's standard, God didn't discard us, nor did He discard His standard. Instead, He sent His Son to live a sinless life, as a perfect human. Jesus paid the price for our sins with His perfect sacrifice, satisfying God's standard as both fully human and fully God. Jesus is the gateway between man and God, the one and only way to the eternal life God wants to give us. To trust in our own merit is futile. Instead, we're to trust in God's goodness and in his power to redeem through his Son. When Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen, he was talking about one's heart, not one's performance. Few are willing to open their hearts to stand guilty before a holy God without excuse, trusting only in His goodness to forgive through the way He provided. Those who do discover a glorious new life in Christ. Serving Others Religions other than Christianity believe that we sanctify ourselves, and in turn God justifies us. It's an exchange of value, a transaction, I'll do this for you, if you'll do that for me. In other words, sanctification precedes justification, and both are the result of my own righteous actions. The Bible tells us the opposite is true. Justification precedes sanctification. God does both for us with our consent. Since we can't justify ourselves, God justifies us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus when we place our faith in Him. This isn't a this-for-that business transaction. It's a sacrificial gift from our Creator who wants us to become His friends. Our job is to simply accept His gift through faith. We accept God's offer of friendship when we give our lives to the One who gave His life for us. We die to ourselves and are resurrected, born again, as new creatures with His Spirit in us. In God's eyes, 
he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ in us, for we are alive in him. We're justified, declared righteous through our faith in Jesus, just as Abraham was declared righteous through his faith in God. Genesis 15.6 James writes, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. 2.23 NIV Think about it. A friendship isn't based on this for that. Instead, friends naturally want to do things for each other, the opposite of business transactions. In friendships, we're focused on what we can give, on how we can serve someone else. Before we accept Christ, our self-worth comes from how others treat us. We feel good about ourselves when we're praised for our accomplishments, and we think less of ourselves when we're mistreated. When someone violates our God-given rights, we use these rights to defend our self-worth. We must get it back. However, when we give our lives to Jesus, our self-worth no longer comes from how others treat us, but from the price Jesus paid for us. We're worth the life of God's only Son because His life is the price He paid for us. This gives us the power to go beyond the issue of justice to serving others, just as Jesus did. Salvation means that Jesus has given His life for us, if we will accept Him. And service means that his life has made our life new. We now live in and by him for others. As his friends, we are responsible to grow in the grace he provides so that he can use us to help others become his friends too. We learn to do this over time. Sanctification is a lifelong journey. Praise God that thanks to the presence of Jesus' grace in us, it's a journey we don't take alone. Learning to Follow by Cindy Aurora Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. From evening until morning it was above the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire. Numbers 9.15 while I read Numbers 9 recently, the pillar of cloud captured my attention. I noticed that the text repeated the same information about the cloud seven more times through verse 22, every verse. From the seventh day creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, the number seven has come to symbolize completeness or perfection in the Bible. Clearly, this divine repetition about the cloud's movement was important to the Lord. So what should I be learning from this? Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that, the children of Israel would journey, and in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. Verse 17. This cloud by day and fire by night was the very presence of God in the midst of Israel. Since God did not speak to the people directly at that time, the cloud's movement was the command of the Lord. They were to watch the cloud continually for instruction or direction. They were to be ready to follow its movement, day or night. Obedience is the key point here, and the fact that it's reiterated seven times emphasizes continual obedience, 
complete obedience, seven days a week. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8.14 The Israelites following the cloud in the wilderness is a foreshadowing of us following the Holy Spirit. In the life of the New Testament believer, the Holy Spirit is that cloud of God's presence, and His direction is the command of the Lord. Just as the Israelites were to be continually aware of the cloud's movement, so we are to be continually aware of the Spirit's movement, ready to follow Him daily. God wants our complete obedience. The text in Numbers 9 also says that the Israelites would pitch their tents, or camp, when the cloud lingered. Likewise, unless the Holy Spirit is leading us, we are not to act. We are to stay put. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 22. Finally, I noticed that the Israelites never had to wonder what God's command was. They simply looked to the cloud over the tabernacle. Even in the dark, they could see the cloud because it looked like fire. In the same way, we never have to wonder what God's command is. We need only look to the cloud of His presence in our lives, the Holy Spirit, and follow obediently. I pray that I am faithful to follow the Holy Spirit's every leading, His every command. Lean on Me by Diana C. Derringer But Moses' hands became heavy, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Exodus 17:12. I grew up on a farm where hard work was the norm. The summer sun drew sweat and the sweat drew bees. Muscles cramped and chores seemed endless. When we needed a break, we often leaned against the closest fence. It propped us up while we drank cold water, wiped our faces, and wondered how much longer until quitting time. We didn't always have a fence for propping, but it surely helped when we did. Just like those fences, good friends support us during trying times. We can depend on them to always be there, firm, steadfast, secure. That's what Aaron and Hur did for Moses. When Moses grew weary, they held up his hands, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. They stayed with Moses, never wavering, until he completed his task of making sure the Israelites were victorious. Examples like these and other men and women of the Bible prompt me to ask, do I allow others to lean on me when they're weak? As God's family, we can ask ourselves, do we offer a place for people to catch their breath before they move on? Do we provide a moment of respite when they think their task will never end? We can resolve to prop one another up when life gets tough. As Aaron and Hur did for Moses, and as the Holy Spirit does for all who place their faith in Jesus, let's be there to prop one another up when life gets tough. Paul puts it this way, Bear one another's burdens, 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2 May God help us to be the vessels of His strength as we extend our hands in support for one another. Questions and Answers What does Peter mean when he writes about the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? This question may address the omniscience of God in knowing who will respond to the gospel, or it may address predestination, God's choosing of specific ones from creation. Or perhaps the question refers to the threefold work of God in saving people, covered in the remainder of this passage. The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1-2 Each of these explanations is relevant to Peter's statement about the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but writing an informed answer to any one of them, much less all three, requires more space than we have here. So let's examine the key words of the phrase in question, elect, foreknowledge, and God. The Apostle Peter wrote this statement to a group of believers scattered across Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. The words appear in the epistle's greeting, and it acknowledges the express faith of those Peter was writing to, verses 3 through 9. Further, it states a truth commonly known and accepted by the apostle and others. In other words, Peter was not expressing a topic in the greeting to cause controversy. God cannot lie. Titus 1-2, 2 Timothy 2-13 Therefore, he is not the author of sin. Neither did God capriciously create man incapable of not sinning. Yet he knew before creating humanity that sin would enter creation. In the Old Testament, the elect refers not to individuals as such, but to Israel as God's chosen people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 They were highly favored, gathered from other nations. They received the very oracles of God through the law and the prophets, and through means that others did not have. Romans 3, 1-31 Peter uses this very Old Testament language of divine election and applies it to the New Testament church. Of these believers, it is said, echoing Deuteronomy 7, 6, and Exodus 19, 5, and 6, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. 1 Peter 2, 9, KJV Like Israel of old, the church is the elect of God by faith. 1, 5-9, Genesis 15, 6 Foreknowledge In human terms, requires time for a reference. It is applied here to the eternal God, who created time, but is not bound by it. With humans, we think of knowing what was or is or will be. With God, those references do not apply, since time is specifically a component of his creation, 
not of himself. On foreknowledge and the passage in question from 1 Peter 1, John Wesley offers helpful comments. Strictly speaking, there is no foreknowledge, no more than afterknowledge with God, but all things are known to him as present from eternity to eternity. This is therefore no other than an instance of the divine condescension to our low capacities. Elect, by the free love and almighty power of God, taken out of, separated from the world. Election, in the scripture sense, is God's doing anything that our merit or power have no part in. The true predestination, or foreappointment of God, is one, he that believeth shall be saved from the guilt and power of sin. 2. He that endureth to the end shall be saved eternally. 3. They who receive the precious gift of faith thereby become the sons of God, and being sons, they shall receive the spirit of holiness to walk as Christ also walked. Elder Chip Hines Finding the True Liberated Life by Christopher L. Scott Scripture quotations are taken from NASB unless otherwise noted. Alexander Supertramp was the name he gave himself. His real name was Chris McCandless. He grew up in a high-achieving family. His father worked for NASA, and his mother worked for Hughes Aircraft. That kind of family created pressure on Alexander to go to college, get good grades, and find a respectable upper-class job as his parents did. But after graduating from Emory University in Georgia, Alexander surprised everyone. He sold all his belongings, donated all the money in his savings account to a charity, and hitchhiked across America. He canoed down the Colorado River, then he hitchhiked to Fairbanks, Alaska. He was done with the pressure from the world, from his parents and professors to get good grades, and from his friends who were getting good jobs out of college. Alexander wanted freedom, and he found it, or so he thought. New Creation Many of us can relate to the external pressure from the world that Alexander Supertramp felt. It comes from our parents who want to be proud of us, so they push us to get an education and land a good job. It comes from school, when every teacher insists that success in life requires that you do well in their specific class. It comes from our jobs, where no matter how good our work is, someone always points out how we could have done better. We too search for freedom, but we need a deeper kind. In the last words of Paul in Galatians, he summarizes for us the freedom we experience because of our faith in Christ. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Galatians 6, 15-17 Verse 15 is the apex of the final chapter of Galatians. 
When we are liberated by Christ, we are a new creation by God's transformative grace. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The new creation has taken the place of the world. Changed Lives An encouraging part of church ministry is seeing this kind of transformation in people's lives. A woman named Mona used to attend a class I taught for new believers. Throughout that class, I learned how God liberated Mona from 20 years of drug addiction and dysfunctional relationships. Was it because of something she did? Not really. She would tell you that God was the source of her change. God miraculously removed her addiction and provided a way out of her abusive relationships. Now Mona works a full-time job, takes care of her mom, and lives a peaceful life. Stories like this are encouraging because you see how God changes people when they become a new creation. When we are liberated by Christ, we experience peace because we are free from the world's pressures on us. No one is telling us what we have to do to gain others' favor. We don't have to put pressure on others to perform at work because of the pressure put on us. We don't have to climb the ladder of success only to realize it's leaning on the wrong wall. We have peace because we know where we are going and that God's Spirit walks with us along the way. The path might be difficult and painful, but we know it ends with spending eternity with God. Persecution When we are liberated by Christ, we will experience persecution as well as peace. The Greek word Paul uses for brand marks, Galatians 6.17, comes from a verb that means to prick, to sting, or to stick. In the first century, slaves and some military soldiers had the name stamp of their owners placed on their bodies. Paul uses this Greek word to describe physical scars that he had on his body. 2 Corinthians 6, 4-6, Paul saw his scars as proof that he was a true believer. This provides a reminder to believers today that we too experience persecution for our faith. The brand marks for us might be co-workers who mock us because of our faith not getting a promotion because we refuse to cut corners on our job, or a family that ridicules us because of our walk with Christ. True Liberator Alexander Supertramp was looking for freedom from the pressures of the world. He thought it, he found it. While living alone in the Alaskan wilderness, he ate some bad seeds that prevented his digestive system from absorbing nutrients. He eventually died from starvation. Alexander was looking for that freedom, but never truly found it. As believers, we experience freedom from the world. But that freedom doesn't come because we sell everything, abandon our family, and go live in Alaska, even though that might be appealing at times. It comes from our liberator, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for us and freed us from the sins that enslaved us. Liberated by the Liberator, we enjoy peace. Clothed with Compassion 
by Virginia A. Johnson. Scripture quotations are taken from NIV, unless otherwise noted. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Colossians 3.12 Paul urges the believers in Colossae to clothe themselves with five characteristics of Christ. Compassion heads the list, followed by kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Each one is important for Christians to possess, because that is how the world sees Christ's love in action. I pray Christ manifests these five characteristics in me, especially active compassion. However, now in my late seventies, it is more difficult to carry out works of compassion. If it's not the aching body, time constraints, or other demands, it's the continuous battle with self-doubt about what, when, where, and how much to give in coming alongside others. Women in Crisis I found myself in such a position during the COVID pandemic. Two women long-term acquaintances of mine were diagnosed with late-stage cancer. When told this news, I felt not only shock and grief, but also distressed. I rarely saw or communicated with either woman. How could I show love and concern without overstepping boundaries or causing offense? My husband's precarious health, my physical limitations, plus COVID restrictions, shrunk the possibilities of what I could do. I did the best thing first. I prayed and asked the Lord for wisdom. Soon, a simple idea pushed its way to the front of the fears lined up in my mind. Send a greeting card to each one. I did just that. I wrote a long message in each card and shared how much these women meant to me. I promised to pray for them and their families regularly. As an afterthought, I included my cell phone number. I expected no response because these women were fighting for their lives. To my surprise, both responded. They made the effort to thank me, despite the physical trauma of their rigorous cancer treatments. Encouraged, I sent more cards and brief text messages, always mindful of their physical, emotional, and mental fragility. During the weeks and months that followed, I slowly rebuilt a relationship with each one. The younger woman's cancer moved into a temporary period of stabilization. When she felt able, my daughter and I participated in a FaceTime session with her. We talked about this and that, but we also talked about Christ. Too soon, my bright, caring, and talented friend elected to go on hospice. She passed away a brief time later. The second friend has a different story. When they diagnosed her with cancer, the doctors gave her only a few months to live. Early in her struggle, both physical and spiritual, my friend shared with me a turning point in her life. One night, she recalled, I finally told God, You are God, and I am not. She outlived all medical predictions and is still alive more than three years later. After COVID restrictions were lifted, we visited her and her elderly husband in their home. As we drove away, I prayed our presence gave them godly joy, 
strength, and courage. I continue to keep in contact with this friend. Two women, two different lives. But through my prayers and trust in his guidance, the Lord gave me a way to show his compassion to each one. Expanding Your Cloak At first, I could not fully grasp the meaning of Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3.12. It helped me to mentally visualize clothe as being wrapped in a big cloak, spacious and warm. Each of us is to clothe, to cloak ourselves in these five characteristics at all times, especially for people like me, compassion. I confess at times I have not abided in his cloak. The result? I take on too much, offend someone, or overlook a work he wants me to do. Our Lord is gracious. He knows our limits, and that it takes a lifetime to grow in wisdom and willingness for him to use us in reaching out to others. Because of this, I have gleaned four pieces of wisdom from God's word, his people, and my life experiences. May they help you. Ask the Lord to expand your cloak, to have greater compassion, as well as kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, for those hurting or in need. When a need is set before you, bathe it in prayer. Test it against God's word so you know what to do and what not to do. Then obey him. Be mindful of personal commitments, your spiritual health, family needs, and personal health limitations. Carry thankfulness in your heart, whether he opens big doors, little ones, or none. When we actively honor our Savior's command by putting Colossians 3.12 into practice, the Lord does something wonderful. He gives us the opportunities to open wide our cloaks and draw hurting people close to our hearts. David Discovers the Joy of Serving Others by Marcia Sanders Come on, Skippy, David yelled as he raced across the field. Let's see if Papa wants to go fishing. David found Papa loading tools into his truck. Hey, Papa, he called. Let's go catch some of those goggle eyes in the creek. I can't right now, Papa answered. I'm getting ready to fix Mr. Jack's back porch. But he can't pay you for helping. And besides, he's a real grouch, always yelling and complaining about everything. I'm not doing it for money or because he's a close friend, Papa said. Mr. Jack needs help, so I'm helping him. Do you remember the verse about doing good that Pastor used in his sermon last week? I think so, David replied. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Galatians 6, 9, NIV. Papa smiled. That's it. And that's what I'm doing. Serving God by serving others. David's shoulders slumped. But what do you get out of it? And besides, I really wanted you to go fishing with me this afternoon. Well, you have a choice then, Papa replied. Fishing by yourself or helping me work on Mr. Jack's porch. If I finish quickly, maybe we'll have time to fish. But I don't know anything about building stuff, David whined. Then there's no better time to learn than now. Papa grabbed some boards and the two of them took off. He showed David how to pull up the old rotted boards 
and replaced them with the new boards he had already cut. Soon, Mr. Jack had a solid back porch. He showed his thanks by bringing Papa and David ice-cold lemonade and fresh molasses cookies. Wow, David exclaimed. These cookies are great. Mr. Jack beamed. I made them myself. Say, I didn't know you were such a good carpenter. I'm not, David confessed. Papa had to show me how. No shame in that, Papa said. We all have to learn sometime. So, Jack, can we help with anything else? No, Mr. Jack answered, but I'm so thankful that you and David fixed this porch for me. My little granddaughter almost fell through last month, and I've been afraid to let her come over ever since. She's been so disappointed, and my days are lonely without her, but now she can visit and play safely. Well, David and I have some serious fishing to do, so we'll say goodbye and head out, Papa said. David looked at Papa. Fixing that porch for Mr. Jack made me feel good. I like that the work we did made his home safer for him and his granddaughter. Now I see what God meant about us reaping a reward for what we do for others. It isn't money. It isn't hearing others say thank you. It's knowing that we're being more like Jesus, who is constantly doing things for others. You're so right, David. Rescued, Redeemed, Restored by Wade Rose In that epic encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3 about what it means to be born again, Jesus explained, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 6 Every person on the planet has been born of the flesh. But the life of the flesh only produces death and destruction. The only true hope of humanity is new life in Christ, the spiritual life that produces a whole new nature. Just as children inherit the nature of their parents, so those born of the Spirit inherit a spiritual nature. Just as our human nature determines our appetites and actions, our spiritual nature evokes new tastes and desires, manifested in new behaviors. Peter describes this as becoming partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, and further states that we have been given everything we need to live out this new life, verses 2-4. through four. Yet as Nicodemus's life underscores, being deeply religious doesn't guarantee our understanding of the spiritual life. Thus, the invitation to come and see our new life in Christ. Spiritual Realities So let's begin by considering some of the spiritual realities that become true of us the moment we are saved through the profession of faith in Christ. According to Scripture, we are redeemed and forgiven of our sins, Ephesians 1.7, brought into spiritual union with Christ, Romans 6.3, Colossians 3.3, given a new nature, 2 Peter 1.4, and new identity, 2 Corinthians 5.17, free to live above sin, Romans 6, 5-11, loved with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3, John 3.16, God's workmanship, created to do good works, Ephesians 2, 8-10, justified by faith and have peace with God, Romans 5, 1, 
given a hope that goes beyond this life. 1 Corinthians 5.19 Gifted to serve as members of Christ's body. Ephesians 4.7.8 And that's just for starters. Wise minds have therefore crafted succinct language with which to capture it all. One is rescued, redeemed, and restored, based on Colossians 1, 13, 14. Through Christ's deliverance, we have been rescued from the power of darkness. Through his blood we are redeemed, bought back by the blood of Jesus. Through the forgiveness of sins, set free from guilt and shame, we're restored to a personal relationship with God through Christ. Personal Responsibilities But our new life in Christ comes with personal responsibilities. Paul turns the corner in Colossians 3 from talking about putting off the old nature and putting on the new. For instance, we are free to live above sin, but we don't always exercise that freedom. The hymn writer therefore reminds us that Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. What are canceled sins? Those we've been freed from, but are still dominating our lives. So Paul tells the Colossians to exercise their freedom in Christ by putting off the old nature, marked by anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language. Verse 8. As Calvin Miller notes in his book Into the Depths of God, Christians are not to be so much quitters as starters. They do not endear themselves to God because of all they lay aside at conversion. Rather, it is what they take up that catches heaven's esteem. So Paul quickly moves on to instructions about putting on the new man, which he describes in verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. As various ones have noted, this is more than an old guy getting a new wardrobe. This passage has in mind a total makeover, experiencing a whole new quality of life. New life. This affirms the construction of the text in the original Greek. The Greeks had two words for new, neos, concerning time, young, recent, the latest, and kainos, concerning quality, initial, brand new, fresh. In his command to put on the new man in Colossians 3, Paul uses kainos, suggesting a new way of life. He further describes it in verses 15 to 17. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Through supernatural rebirth, we're given a new nature along with everything we need to live out the Christian life. This includes the freedom to cooperate with the sanctifying work of the Spirit and putting off the old nature and putting on the new. 
The result is a vibrant, winsome, abundant life that triumphs over the brokenness of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9 And it explains the indomitable spirit of first-century Christians. Rome had a vested interest in putting Christianity out of business and applied the cruelest forms of persecution possible. But that only served as fuel for the fire of the gospel. For the forces of darkness cannot prevail against the evidence of a changed life. This also explains why, long after Jesus died, his disciples willingly accepted martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. The explanation is simple yet profound. They were compelled and richly supplied by the spiritual realities of their new life in Christ. Stepping Out, Finding God's Purpose for You by Shirley Brosius It didn't happen overnight. Simon Peter took many missteps along the way, but God changed him from an ordinary fisherman into a dynamic preacher. His story inspires us to discern God's purpose for our lives. We can step out in faith, even though we too may stumble along the way. Simon's Story Simon's brother Andrew introduced him to Jesus, who immediately dubbed Simon as Cephas, translated Peter, and meaning stone, John 1, 42. The brothers were fishermen, and when Jesus invited them to fish for people, they left everything and followed him, Luke 5:11. Peter experienced failures on the road to finding his purpose. Before obeying, he balked when Jesus told him to row out farther and let down his net, verse 5. Then when Jesus invited Peter and two other disciples to join him in Gethsemane as he prayed, they fell sound asleep, Matthew 26, 40. And Peter flatly denied any association with Jesus when he was questioned before the crucifixion, Luke 22:57. Even so, Peter was the first to profess Christ as the Son of God, and Jesus indicated that on this rock, Peter's revelation from God and his confession of Christ, the church would be built. Matthew 16, 16-18 After the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, this man preached such a powerful sermon that 3,000 people joined the community of believers. Acts 2, 14-41 Peter later wrote to persecuted believers, urging them to keep the faith and use their spiritual gifts as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10 This apostle had discovered his spiritual gift and his purpose, and he wanted all believers to find their niche in building the kingdom. My Story the journey to finding purpose takes trial and error and time. My journey began as a young woman teaching an after-school Bible club in my home. Twenty-some neighborhood kids trudged into my living room each Wednesday. After cookies and drinks, the children settled down to sing songs, hear Bible and missionary stories, and play a game. In time, I recruited a neighbor to host our meetings, and another woman joined us to tell the missionary story. I treasure the well-rounded Bible education I received in teaching curriculum that led through the Bible over five years. But as a high school teacher, I did 
not feel I related best to children other than my own. Then my pastor suggested I earn a master's degree in Christian education and join our church staff. As the director of Christian education, I began teaching adults and doing administrative work to keep a growing congregation learning. There I found my purpose, and I especially enjoyed helping others find theirs. After ten years, I left that position to devote myself to writing, and after publishing a book, I enjoyed a speaking ministry. Like Peter, my audience, role, and purpose changed through the years. Spiritual Gifts and Talents We find listings of spiritual gifts in Scripture. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Online inventories abound where Christians can discover their spiritual gifts. We may have personal preferences that point to them, or friends might tell us the gifts they see in us. We may discover our gifts through activities we enjoy. For instance, someone who enjoys sharing the gospel may have the gift of evangelism. Not all spiritual gifts put you in the limelight, or even in front of a class of wiggly youngsters. Many devoted Christians serve behind the scenes. Think of the man whose name was Josephus but was dubbed by the disciples as Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. We first meet Barnabas in Acts 4, 36-37, when he sold a parcel of land and gave the money to the apostles. He later traveled with Saul to Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord, Acts eleven twenty three. Barnabas' spiritual gift and purpose was to encourage others. Then there are our talents. Musical skills and aptitudes can be used within congregations, and people who are good with numbers might serve as financial advisors. Even our workplace training might be utilized for the Lord. Perhaps we've developed computer or technology skills. Christian organizations need people in those fields. Your purpose may lie in raising godly children, or touching your family for God. Christiana Tsai of China led 55 relatives to find new life in Christ after she chose to live at her family's apartment complex rather than accept positions in the workplace. Satisfaction Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Galatians 6, 4, NLT. Every Christian has a spiritual gift or talent to offer the Lord that defines our purpose in life. Step out in faith and find it, and in exchange the Lord will fill your heart with peace, joy, and a deep feeling of satisfaction. A Legacy of Leadership How to Be Remembered as a Christian Leader by Bob Hostetler. Scripture quotations are taken from NIV unless otherwise noted. 
I picked up the hotel room movie guide and was struck by the tagline for a program titled, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. We will be known forever by the tracks we leave behind. We don't often think in such terms. We don't live our lives from day to day with little or no thought about the tracks we are leaving behind. It's not a question of whether we leave a legacy or not. The only question is whether it's a legacy we want to leave behind. Many people naturally aspire to leadership, to influence, to making a difference in as many lives as possible. But leadership seldom happens naturally. Such a legacy is the product of a leadership perspective, leadership character, and leadership development. All three are on display in an early Christian letter in the Bible. Servant Perspective Paul, the great church planter of the first century, wrote the following to his protege, Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Titus 1, 1 through 3. Notice Paul's perspective, how he identified himself in this letter. He called himself a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To Paul, those two terms are virtually interchangeable. To be a Christian leader means being a servant. Paul isn't the only one who serves as our model in this. Other leaders in the early church signed their letters, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1.1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.1. 1, 1. They were all servants first, foremost, and fully. After all, that's the way Jesus said it should be. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Mark 10, 42-44 This is our perspective. If you would leave a legacy of leadership, be a servant, swallow your pride, wash people's feet, stoop as low as you can because the most effective leaders are the willingest workers, the ones who show up early and stay late because there's garbage to take out and coffee to brew. Strong Character Paul also wrote to Titus, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. 
1, 6-9. Paul's counsel to Titus makes it clear that anyone who wants to leave a legacy of leadership should focus not on building a following, but on building strong character and a sturdy reputation. In fact, anyone who would lead others might use Paul's words as a sort of checklist from time to time. Is my conduct blameless? Am I faithful to my spouse? Am I teaching and training my young children well? Am I pushy and overbearing? Is my temper under control? Are my appetites under control? Am I belligerent? Am I honest in my business practices? Do I show hospitality to others? Am I drawn to good things and positive people? Am I self-controlled? Am I upright and fair-minded? Is my way of life holy and pure? Am I disciplined? Do I have a grasp of what is biblical sound doctrine? That may seem like an unrealistic standard to some, but it's not a call to legalistic perfection. It's a depiction of what a leader looks like so that Titus would be sure to know one when he saw one. And though Paul used male language when he wrote to Titus, it doesn't mean only men may lead. In other letters, he unabashedly referred to women in leadership, even to one who was outstanding among the apostles. Romans 16.7 If you would leave a legacy of leadership to those you love, those who come after you, those you may not even know yet, focus on building the kind of character Paul describes to Titus. If you read the checklist above and a few weak areas pop out at you, Start focusing your prayers, seek help, and become accountable to someone in those areas, because true leadership is a product of character. Character Development Paul introduced himself as a servant, described the character of a leader, and then explained why the development of such character is so important in the church. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Titus 1, 10-16 at the time Titus lived and ministered there, Crete was an excessively materialistic, greedy, belligerent, dishonest society. That may not resemble your country, city, or neighborhood, but when it comes to leaving a legacy, it won't do for us to whitewash ourselves or our situations. Paul's words suggest that anyone who aspires to lead should be prepared for a struggle. That's how we develop. It may be a struggle like Titus faced against liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Or it may be a struggle against wonderful, well-intentioned people. It may be a struggle against folks who are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing good. Or with people who are smarter than we, 
but don't have all the information we have. It may be a struggle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6.12, or against our own thick-headedness or immaturity, or it may just be a struggle to develop the skills and training we need. If you would leave a legacy of leadership, be prepared to struggle with yourself, with others, with God, with circumstances, with your spouse, with your superiors or subordinates, with your need to learn more skills. Be prepared even to struggle with the very calling and aspiration to be a leader when it would be easier to just lay low, sit back, and let your legacy be, whatever it's going to be. This is the way to spiritual development. But if you are determined to leave a legacy of leadership, begin now, or continue, to cultivate a leader's perspective, character, and development. This way, years from now, even generations from now, you will be remembered by the tracks you leave behind. His Promises, My Tasks Father, I claim them all. The perfect peace that passes understanding. The direction of my paths. The mercy and grace to help me in my time of need. The working of all things together for my good. My every need supplied. Your strength enabling me to do all things. May I do my part, keeping my mind on you, letting my requests be made known to you, trusting in you with all my heart, never trusting my own understanding, coming boldly onto your throne. Glenn Blessy Last Word How Should We Then Live? How Should We Then Live is a book written by Christian theologian Francis A. Schaeffer. The then in the title refers to the sad state of Western thought and culture after almost 2,000 years of its steady movement away from biblical truth and a Christian worldview. In light of that decline, asked Dr. Schaeffer in 1976, how should we then live as 20th century Christians. While none of the New Testament epistles have Schaefer's title, most of them could. In that case, the then would refer to the new life enjoyed by regenerate believers, once spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses, but now by God's grace, through faith, spiritually alive in Christ. In light of that, asked the New Testament writers, how should we then live as children of God in Christ? The answers to this question given by God through these writers are many and varied. Here are just a few examples. From James, Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. 1, 19-22, NASB throughout. From Peter, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. 
Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 13-16 From John By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 John 2, 3-6 From Paul Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Romans 12, 1-3 How should we then live as individuals saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus? We should live as Jesus lived, obedient and fully devoted to God and His kingdom. Lauren Stacy. Scripture quotations stated as NASB are taken from the NASB New American Standard Bible. Copyright 2020 by the Lachman Foundation. Used by permission, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to the Audio BA.